welcome back to In the Belly of the Beast. In this episode, we had the enormous honor of spending some time in conversation with Gagegi Yashik, Don Goodwin, who's an Anishinaabe woman from RISE Coalition, who's been intimately involved on the front lines and throughout the water protector movement to stop the Line 3 Tar Sands Pipeline, which traverses from Alberta, Canada to Superior, Wisconsin, through the North Woods and Treaty Territories of Northern Minnesota, the state in which we're all living. In our last episode, the four of us conversed on water and line three, partly in light of the MinPost article I wrote this summer. I thoroughly appreciated that honest sharing and learning, and I felt like it was really important to bring Gagigiashik's voice into our analysis of this pipeline, as well as the potent and beautiful resistance against it, given her intimacy with the struggle and given her Indigenous perspective, as this fight has been so centered and led by Indigenous women. We say that this podcast, In the Belly of the Beast, is seeking to create multidisciplinary conversations and critical inquiry about a range of topics. And my sense of what this means is that we're seeking to explore a breadth of social issues with a critical lens attuned to race and economy and gender, bringing into focus how the forces of capitalism, settler colonialism, white supremacy, and heteropatriarchy, to name a few, undergird our lives. And while we seek to name and understand those systems, we also acknowledge how we, the four of us, and perhaps all of us listening, are entangled in and intermeshed with these forces. We have been shaped by these forces and we live within them. We breathe, we taste, we hear and see, we pray, we meditate, we think, we conspire, and we act from within the belly of the beast. We are not separate from it. We are within. And we seek to resist, to transform, and perhaps to generate something visionary, something of beauty and love from within. In this conversation with Gagigiashik, she shares very vulnerably her own efforts to protect Monoman and water and people, and how she is in relationship with all forms of life in our ecosystem. She invites us to reflect on our own relations with both the extractive, oppressive systems that diminish and destroy, as well as those which give life. Thank you for listening. Hello, listeners. Thanks for joining us. This is In the Belly of the Beast. I'm Amy Finnegan, and I'm here with Todd Lawrence today. And we are so grateful to have a guest with us. Our guest is Don Goodwin, whose name is Gagi Yashik. She is a protector of Monoman, wild rice, and Nibi water from Lower Rice Lake White Earth Reservation. She's the co-founder of the RISE Coalition, Resilient Indigenous Sisters Engaging. I'm really grateful to have had the extraordinary opportunity to meet Gagi Yashik on a few webinars earlier this year and then to be in her physical presence on a number of occasions up north this summer, including witnessing her lead the Treaty People Gathering in early June of this summer, which was the base of one of the largest shows of resistance, a thousand plus people to the Line 3 Tar Sands Oil Pipeline. She's got a lot of a lot of history and a lot of experiences and other accolades, which hopefully they'll come out in our time together. So Don, I'm wondering if we could start by you sharing with our listeners just a little bit about who you are, what matters most to you, and how you have come to be part of the water protector movement to stop Line 3. 
Puju, Gaga Yeashi, Kindishnakas, Kawaba, Biganikag, and Dunjaba, Mayingan, and Dudem. My name is Everlasting Wind, and I'm from White Earth, and I am part of the Wolf Clan. Uh, my English name is Don Goodwin, and uh, a little more about me is I'm an alumni from Bemidji State University, and uh, I'm an Anishinaabe from this area here in uh, northern Minnesota. And it is my duty as a wolf clan to protect the environment and the people. And so that is part of why I do what I do and how I became involved in this movement. Because I knew I couldn't do it alone. I needed others to help in that. And you are currently part of the third installation of Firelight Treaty Encampment on Highway 2, right? East of Bagley, Minnesota. Yes. On the border of the 1855 Treaty Boundary. Yep. Can you describe for us what you're experiencing there and and a little bit of the history of of Firelight Treaty Encampment? Yes. So um, Firelight, this is our third encampment in the area. The first one was the boardwalk by Mississippi River, which we occupied for eight days. And then after that, we occupied the Mississippi River Ditchway to keep an eye on Mississippi while they did the horizontal drilling. And we discovered uh, their frack outs while we were out there. And um, my friend was the first one that witnessed what was going on. They were pumping frack fluids from their frack out. She couldn't sleep and she went and looked, uh, seeing what they were doing and got that on film. And uh, that is what they were doing. They were vacuuming up the frack fluids that were coming up out of the wetlands there. This third encampment now that we've had, and this is uh, Firelight Clearwater River. So Firelight Encampment at Clearwater River. And that is on Highway 2, east of Bagley, Minnesota. This is my hometown. Graduated from here in 1989. And my family home is just three miles from our encampment site. And uh, we started Firelight they got the name Firelight from one of our elders in the community. And uh, he lit the fire there, spiritual fire. And um, the name Firelight came to him because we're bringing truth to light. And that this fire, that the world will be able to see the light and the truth that is brought forth. And so I want to talk a little more about the, um, the Ishkode as the center of that. And um, we brought the coals home from first firelight on the boardwalk, reignited them, the fire at Monoman Camp. And that fire has been lit since uh, June 8th and been going. And then we've carried the coal to the second one by Mississippi. And I took the coals home when we went home and uh, added them to Monoman Fire and kept them going until we brought our coals here again now to uh, Firelight Clearwater. And so um, all those fires are mingled within. And also another fire that was lit on the Treaty People's Walk. So those ashes to coals had came and reunited um, with the rest of the firelight ashes and coals. Gagigiyashik, one thing you've spoken about publicly is some of your personal care responsibilities to your family members, to your mother, to your, to your husband amidst also the broader struggle to care and protect our Mother Earth 
And we're curious, how do you how do you balance those tensions and where do you see any intersections? Um, yeah, the balancing part is very difficult. My husband is uh, went on a medication to help him a little bit while I'm gone for his seizure activity. He's been feeling better. It's a little hard to be away. He's calls me quite a bit. I try to go home when I can. And um, yeah, and we know that this is for a short time, the intensity of it all. But we just have to give it our all now and like rest later mm. um, when we can or rest whenever we can. Um, my mother passed in June, the day before her birthday. <clears throat> but I've not really been able to properly grieve. I try to at times. But she's with me. So it's not easy. But I have to do what I need to do. The wind was knocked out of my sail for a little bit. But it's back. And uh, although it's sad, she's not hurting anymore. And life goes on. And I just need to grasp how I dealt with my dad and my, and my grandmas, grandpas, aunties and uncles that have gone before me and friends and nieces and that they're still with us. Even though they're not physically here, they're in our hearts. That's where they are alive. Sorry. <laughs> Laugh and cry at once. No, thanks for being real with us. It's like a gift to, I don't know, just to be to be real with one another. So thank you for that. Um, I'm sorry, really sincerely sorry for your loss. I think you beautifully embody that spirit of like care and protection. And I, I have learned a lot from you and how you frame caring and protecting for Mother Earth and for the water. And I think that there's so much um, intersections there with and how we care for the people in our lives, people that we're close to. I know that I, I'm a mother and I feel like I've, I've just learned a lot. We've expanded my ideas around protection and care. So thank you. Thank you. In the vein of thinking about caretaking and protecting, an observation that one of, the, one of my comrades in this project has made is in the contrast, like it's a, there's such a contrast between protection and care to like the extractive endeavors that line three serves, like mining and fracking. The logic of late capitalism seems to be emphasizing extraction and exploiting to like the very last drop, right? From people and from places. And I'm, I'm just curious, we'd love to hear more on how you understand like protectors and caretakers of the land, like how we think differently about our relationship to the earth and to one another than that sort of extractive, that extractive logic. The best way I can explain that is um, we've been taught that we are all related. That means we are related 
to the plant nation, the animal nation, four-leggeds, the swimmers, the crawlers, uh, the tree nation. I even discovered there's a mushroom nation. Um, the water, it's all our relatives. And um, we're not above them. We are part of nature. And um, there comes a point where the extraction is just too much. It's gone beyond safe for our environment, for the lands, the water, the people, all our relatives out there, who includes the muskrat and even the mice families <laughs> and the flies even, because <laughs> they have their job too. The flies have been horrible all summer long. They started in June and they do that during drought. Yeah, so uh, that's what we're dealing with, those, those horrible black flies right now. And uh, ladybugs kind of had vengeance there. Uh, they're not so bad out here now, but they like that heat. And uh, So we're enjoying Indian summer out here, favorite time of the year. I've been kind of mad lately because we haven't had very good falls. And I'm like, what? They even took our Indian summer from us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we're enjoying that right now. Although it got a little chilly last night. Mm. Um, how else can I describe that connection? Um, we're from these lands. Our ancestors are here. Um, we are this land. And so we're connected here. And um, that's a difference. So we don't just see this all as just resource and money. And, and we understand, yes, people do need to work. But we want to have a change. We want to be that change. And uh, we want to grow the future. And uh, right here, I'm learning to um, live without that running water. Um, when I first moved into uh, our home now, where we live now, we didn't have running water right away. And so we were nine months without running water and I uh, learned how to make it work. So we're out here and we're nice and clean as a whistle. So, and we have like our own little hand pump. We can wash our hands. So we got that flowing water. We got a, a water pump to for rinsing dishes. And so we, we're making things work. Um, we don't need that electricity. We do have a solar panel for generating our electricity here, but we're making it. Right now, I'm not running off any heat, just blankets. And if we stay here longer, we do not know how long we're going to be here. So um, we'll see. I might um, be around a fire. I'm not too sure what's, what our future holds here and how long we'll be staying. Uh, only the spirits know that. Although it's sometimes not easy to, to follow that, we are. That is what we're following, the Mighty Duke and, and the messages they bring for us. I was going to ask, Ad, does it feel like to have the openness to your presence there as a collective, does that feel, it sounds like it, you said it doesn't always feel easy to not know what's going to come next or how long you're going to be there. But it sounds like you're also like, I need, I'm, I'm, I'm where I need to be. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't be here if I wasn't guided here. Mm, that's powerful. Another question that, um, my comrades might have raised is around we've noticed or observed and participated in some of the framing around honor the treaties that like rise coalition and others have used in this movement against line three 
And I was curious to hear what your perspective is on some of the strengths and weaknesses of framing a call for justice in this way. And I think particularly these are coming from a perspective of like, does this give legitimacy to the state? when we're like, when it's around treaties. I'm just curious, like how you, how, what you think is about that, the ideas of honor the treaties as a way to, to move forward in the struggle. Well, treaties are actually federal. So they're recognized in the constitution under article six as the supreme law of the land. And so that government to government relationship is not being honored by the state of Minnesota and by the people who allowed and signed those treaties to allow Minnesota residents to occupy these lands and settle upon them. So the people have joined us, our allies. They are also treaty people. We are all treaty people. Because in order for this country to evolve in the way that it did, it needed to have those treaties. And 1855 paved the way for Minnesota to become a state in 1858. And our specific treaty of 1855 was a peace and war treaty. And our people were tired of war. And so that was why the treaty was signed, so that we wouldn't have to leave our homelands after the Sandy Lake tragedy happened. And it was set out that the 54 was um, signed first and were sister treaties with the 54. And so that was to ensure we never had to leave our homelands again. And so with that signing, our ancestors allowed the ancestors to come and live. And um, we agreed to live in peace with one another. And so with those treaties, our ancestors gave settlers the right to come here and live. And so we've kept up our end to live in peace. But part of that treaty is being put at risk, is the guarantee of our right to hunt, fish, and gather. That guarantee that we ensured, that we inherently retained, is being put at risk due to climate change and a site-specific deluge. And we can today, in this very moment, see what devastation oil has on water and water life and land. California right now is dealing with that devastation. And that possibly is just crude oil. And just say just. Tar sands oil is a whole nother type of oil, which is actually pretty much asphalt with chemicals and condensate gas to thin it so it can actually run through a pipeline. And it sinks in water when it's uh, absent of those gases that would be released into air or water. It is impossible to clean entirely in wetlands, aquatic areas, and it's highly carcinogenic. And no, um, there's very little study on the effects of, of tar sands oil on living organisms. And that's from the National Academy of Science. And that was a study done in 2015 with that title of the effects of tar sands oil. But even in the study, it says that they hardly studied that. They do not have a model. Enbridge claims that um, they were able to model a spill and that it wouldn't reach the Lake Superior. Well, they don't even have a model available to show a spill of tar sands oil. Uh, so we don't want to be that laboratory for tar sands oil. There's so much in, so much inside of me, I, I get going. I guess I got the right name. 
(laughs) (laughs) I want you to feel free to keep going. I think I appreciate what you were lifting about how the treaties, one of the things that they offer when you frame our struggle for justice around treaties is that there's an invitation for folks who are who are descendants of settlers to also be participants in upholding the treaties. Yes. I think that's that's powerful. I think part of the question that our friend has is around the idea that the state, like the state of Minnesota or the United States, was an occupying force or is an occupying force. And so I think they're like raising, like, are we legitimizing that entity? by emphasizing the treaties and the and the US constitution possibly but it's all we have that is what is always thrown at us mhm and that's all we have um yeah and the people are is all we have left it's clear mm-hmm. that our agencies and our elected of, some of our elected officials have their own path and their own ideas and their own money to ensure that they make but I get it. I do understand. We need to have our careers and money in this world in the way it's set up at this time. But maybe we can think of something better that can work for many more and work for everybody in a good way. Yeah. Love that. Uh, thank you. Um, so here's another question I have. So in, you know, in Struggles Against Pipelines, Line 3 and others across space and time, Law enforcement have mostly been adversaries protecting corporate property and the state at the expense of facilitating safety for people and for protecting the land and the water. In Minnesota, we know the Enbridge-funded Northern Lights Task Force has been paid over $1.7 million for Minnesota County law enforcement to protect multinational foreign corporation to make over 900 arrests of law protectors. Task force members have been documented using paint compliance and rubber bullets on nonviolent water protectors. In Clearwater County, where Line 3 crosses the first, uh, this is the first Mississippi River crossing, and where Campfire Light was in place, uh, one and two, it's been observed that the sheriff has demonstrated a different affect, I mean, perhaps a more friendly affect toward water protectors than in some of the other counties in northern Minnesota. And I was curious, what's your explanation of that? Is that an anomaly? What And what does that have to teach us more broadly about standing for treaty rights and the water and law enforcement? Well, I think it has a lot to do with him growing up in this town. He was born and raised here, uh, such as I. He was just a year younger than I was, so I knew him through high school, uh, elementary school. His mother was my playground aide and classroom aide, and um, we called her grandma back then. (laughs) She was probably young enough to be her mother (laughs) for some reason. So I worked with his wife. My mom worked with his wife and his mother. I worked with his mom, too, because I went um, to work at Bagley School, and she was still working there. You were speaking a little bit about, um, I think the question was around the, the sheriff in Clearwater County and just your explanation of that. And also like, what is it, what, what, like just your thoughts about, you know, what, what are the lessons there for our broader struggle? 
yeah, I guess having um, respect for one another in that. And I know he needed to do his job, take directives and whatnot. And he was able to, by us negotiating and um, working through our ceremony time, and we knew we wanted those seven days for our ceremony. And um, he was pushing us um, when we were going to leave. And we knew at one point it would be out of his hands and that the Northern Life Task Force would come in. We had agreed to leave Monday after our press conference and the announcement that the appeals court gave in Enbridge's favor. And uh, no matter which way it went, we already had said that we would be leaving after we were done with our ceremony. And um, and we wanted time to be able to um, clean our area and, and move our encampment. So we arranged that and we were able to successfully uh, move our encampment and um, not leave any kind of mess behind. And that gave the sheriff, uh, retained his power by us and with him working and honoring our 1855 treaty, our rights that we have, our inherent rights that we retained. He was able to uphold our power too at the same time. So mutual respect and being in peace helped us. And so we were able to successfully um, also have that fire light at the bridge in the ditch area. And with no people being hurt and the law enforcement not having to come in and um, put anybody else at risk of being shot with rubber bullets or anything like that. So, yeah, it is unique in that way. Um, he gave me his word in 2019 that he would uphold our right to peacefully protest and gather and assemble, which includes also our uh, religious freedom and our treaty being upheld means a lot by an elected official. Hmm. And so uh, he, he did come and visit us, but I let him know that we were here uh, camping, that we had set up camp. And, uh, and so we are here. I call this operation, can you see us now? Mm. It's beautiful. And so we are here taking our stand when nobody has listened up to this point and they just keep going. They keep digging, they keep spilling. We have a team coming up, a hydrologist. They are going to take samples. Our lawyer will be along and our drone pilot. And so we are uh, doing all that we can do. Mm. And uh, Together, we only have, like I said, we only have each other now. We have the people, mm. people that need to come together and uh, stand up for our future, future of our young people. Because I certainly do not want to see them have the day where water becomes more expensive than gold. Because we all need water. And it's a human right. And no one should have to pay for water to live. Gage Giyashik, what are a few words you would use to describe the movement to stop Line 3? It's an indigenous-led movement. Um, I'm curious to hear the words you've used to describe the movement, and I'm also curious to... Well, I'll let you go with that first, and <laughs> then I'll ask my second question. Mm. Resistance, occupation, and encampment, and the right to be who the Creator intended us to be. Mm. He intended us to live sustainably, because 
everything we have is provided and it's provided by mother earth it's us that has to make the choice it's empowering and it's community can i ask like would you be willing to describe like what's what's it like at firelight treaty encampment right now where you are like who's who's with you you don't have to give names but like <laughs> describing folks and and what's what what happens in those spaces for folks who maybe not have had the opportunity to to visit a water protected well, camp. Yeah, so we are a firelight encampment. We have a village. We have two kitchens, so two restaurants. We have a little clinic of sorts. <laughs> we have entertainment. Uh, last night was the debut of Firelight Ditch Band. We had a beautiful uh, jam session evening, and uh, it's festive. And a birthday party. We had a birthday party here. And so it, people come and go. Uh, we meet people every day. There's some people that are not for us, and they holler and give us the one-sided peace sign. <laughs> but we have a lot of positive. We get honks. Um, yeah, it's joyous, uh, relaxing. My cousin's coming out here to just come and relax with us. So she's mm-hmm. going to come and spend the day. And bring her her grandson. And so um, we're child friendly. So uh, safety first. So we're making sure we're, we're on a major highway. So we're actually on a frontage road. Um, we call this Bougie Boulevard. Yes, ditch. Yes, the best ditch up just on the outside of town. <laughs> it's all level on both sides. And yeah, we're just bougie boulevard <laughs> so yeah i was gonna say um later on we're creating a little art space coffee shop um extension of don's bistro nice so yeah in the movement the broader movement at, at this camp and in others it's an indigenous-led camp um what if any roles or contributions do you think have you seen coming from allies who are not indigenous to the land have you seen any any contributions from folks who are not indigenous in these spaces? Oh, oh yeah. Um, I like to say our concept and our way is indigenous-led, that we go in a good way, in peace and prayer. But it takes all of us from all directions, all colors of that medicine wheel coming together. And so one of our banners signifies that from the treaty people's gathering, it's all four colors of fists coming together and love being at the center of it all. And um, that's how we're going to win. We have to love. And that starts with loving ourselves first. It's beautiful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Our allies mean everything because mm-hmm. they are part of this and we can't do it without them. And so they have stepped up in every way, um, walking, praying helping in the kitchen, educating, taking all, all the tasks and helping set up tents and set up camp and organizing. And, and uh, yeah, everybody's got gifts and everybody's bringing their gifts to the table. And um, today somebody fixed the cabinet. And last night we had beautiful music. Mm. So um, everybody is bringing their gifts. Mm. I think folks sometimes wonder if they haven't been in those spaces, 
if there's a role for them or not, if they're not indigenous. And I appreciate oh, everything you offered. So thank you. There's a role for everybody because everybody holds a piece of the puzzle. So I have two more questions. One is just to think about, so these are, I mean, for many of us, these are, these are just really trying times. <laughs> um, yes. And I think Todd and I and others were saying we're in the stages of late capitalism and we have climate catastrophe that is abundantly clear. We have many struggles that are local and global um, that are rooted in a critique of capitalism. So like movements for healthcare, movements for fair wages, for abolition from prisons and policing, movements for gender justice. And was curious if you see like any interconnections with the water protector movement and those other movements. Oh yeah, yeah. We're all entwined. Mm. Oh, we need justice on so many levels. The system needs to, um, it needs to change. And so everybody's feeling like they're invisible and not being heard. Mm. How are we going to fix that? Mm -hmm. And it just comes down to is we have each other. Can't do anything alone. Or you can, but it's difficult. We need everybody. So true. <laughs> the the piece about how we need each other especially in facing all of the entanglement that we just mm -hmm. mentioned so i know that enbridge said that oil was going to start to flow on october 1st and then maybe october 3rd and i don't know i, I think part of what y'all are are there for is to protest and to monitor what's actually happening right. um so maybe you could speak about what is actually happening in terms of oil coming or not and my question is, as they claim that the, the pipeline is complete, what, what's the focus now for the movement and for water protectors? And, and how do we continue to cultivate hope? So what's actually going on, and we don't believe that it is flowing, but I understand it's still in Calgary um, and not flowing yet. What we have observed here, uh, Clearwater River um, drill site is water uh, coming up from their drill pad. They do say it's hydrostatic water, but uh, it's really red, rusty, deep brown, and then it changes color. And it has like a residue, like an oily sheen and residue that's like a bluish, and it turns white, gray, and then it turns um, like that real deep maroonish rust orange color and so what's happening here on the and on the mississippi river is actually there's an ecological disaster happening there um our drone pilot got footage yesterday of uh, what mississippi looks like there at that crossing and it's coming up through the wetlands so uh, that is why there's all springs in there so the springs are pushing it up and we're getting drone uh, footage of that. And uh, that's why we're getting more people that are coming to actually test what's coming up to verify what it is, actually. Um, we believe it's drilling mud here at the Clearwater River. It was seven tanks full of this colored water. And each tank like had a different color, like they were diluting it and switching it over. Um, one tank started dripping or whatever, seeping. So they ended up taking that tank down and, and um, getting the water into their containment area that wasn't 
efficient and it was spilling over and spilling out into the wetlands, into the forested area there. So we don't know how well that was treated, what kind of violation. It has to be some kind of violation of the 404 permit. But that's an under investigation is what we've been told this far. MPCA has investigating that. But seems to us there's not really (laughs) regulatory oversight at all. We're the ones that discovered the fractal at the Mississippi. So, yep, they've taken down most of their tanks now. The large tank exploded. Um, That whole area was flooded with water here at Clearwater. So we're keeping an eye. Uh, We're going to be keeping an eye uh, further down on all the crossings, actually. So these are just some that we're concentrating on because Clearwater County, um, where I live, and this is the treaty line here is the 1855 is where we're at. And then across the road from us is the 1863, which is uh, Red Lake. So now there's the role of monitoring what's actually happening in terms of oil flowing, continuing to be a voice of protest and resistance. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's other pieces that you feel like are critical right now for the movement. And, and how do you kind of continue to cultivate hope in all of this? Well, um, love, friends, family, and community that we have built throughout all of this. I have made, um, have some very special relationships that I hold dearly forever. Sisterhoods and um, brotherhood that will be carried into the future as we build tomorrow. And what I like to say as Wolf Clan, as my duty, is that we prohibit, we prohibit them to flow the tar sands oil through our homelands, our treaty area, through our waterways, and through our rice waterways. And we prohibit that. And so that is why we're here. Because it seems that they haven't heard us detest and say no from the very beginning. And, uh, We've said no the whole way. And um, they want to pretend that they adequately consulted us, but they didn't. And so Enbridge likes to use those ads and twist their words that they're helping the tribes, but they sure didn't help me. And it's not all the tribes. They forget to mention that White Earth and um, Red Lake and Malax have lawsuits on them. Gagigiashik, thank you. I'm really grateful for your time and for your wisdom and your insight. There's a lot I'm going to remember and take from this conversation, but really appreciate your persistent vision to grow the future that we want, (laughs) that can be better than what we have. And I um, really also appreciate the uh, the name of your of the operation that you are currently participating in embodying. Can you see us now? And can you hear us now? But it's easier just to say, can you see us now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm hearing you and seeing you and thankful and thankful for this. So thank you very much. And I'm grateful for all the others that will get to hear you from this conversation. So thank you. Right. Well, thank you very much.